Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today, in a change to the advertised episode we had scheduled, we have a very special guest on the podcast. I'm speaking to the new chair of the BMA GP committee in England, Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer, in her first interview since taking on the role. Dr Bramall-Stainer was elected chair just over a week ago, and she takes on the top GP job at the BMA in England at a crucial time for the profession. The five-year GP contract comes to an end in April 2024, and this year's contract negotiations between the BMA, the government and NHS England will hammer out what happens next. We're in the midst of an extreme workload and workforce crisis and the profession will be looking for changes to the contracts that will go some way to addressing both of these challenges and making a difference to their day-to-day working lives. In this conversation, Dr Bramall-Stainer discusses what her key priorities will be in her new role, weighs up the chances of GPs taking industrial action in the coming months and talks about how GP funding needs to change. She also discusses her thoughts about the future of the independent contractor model and her experience of publicly calling out sexism at the BMA a few years ago. So I'm really pleased to say that I'm joined on the podcast now by the brand new chair of BMA England's GP committee, Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer, who was elected to the role just over a week ago. Dr Bramall-Stainer is a GP in Hoddenston in Hertfordshire, and she's been chief executive of Cambridgeshire LMC and chair of the UK Conference of LMCs since 2019. Prior to this, she was a medical director for Northwest London at North London-wide LMCs and a partner in a practice in Hertfordshire. And she's also been a member of the GP committee for a number of years. So she's had a very active career in GP politics before being elected to this top role. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Katie. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, congratulations on your appointment as chair of the GP committee in England. I mean, that's a big job. <laughs> uh, and indeed, commiserations, uh, I think, are in order as well. It's not really a post I ever had aspirations to hold or ever expected to hold, but I think it's an interesting time for GPs. And I think GPs of a certain age, myself included, are very anxious about the years ahead. And I think we recognise that it's make or break time now for us. That's where we are. It's going to be a lot of hard work, but I don't mind hard work. We're going to do the best we can. And I can't promise wonders. And I know it's not going to be all cupcakes and rainbows, but we will work as hard as we can to do the best job we can. So I guess we should start with some of the big issues that you're going to have to be dealing with in this role. And, and, you know, they are really big challenges. You're obviously under no illusions about the scale of the task ahead. Your statement after you were elected said that your focus and greatest challenge was to safeguard the very survival of our profession. What's your approach to that? Where do you start? Well, yeah, where indeed it can be quite overwhelming. But I think the important thing to do is to have a good feel for the temperature check of of GPs out there. This year was the second consecutive imposition of a contract. And I think an absolute red line for us is going to be we cannot have a third imposition. We've got a government coming towards the end of its lifespan. There has to be a general election before the 31st of January 2025. It's probably not going to be in January 25. It's probably not going to be in December 24. So we're looking at next autumn, which means we've got a year to really get into politicians' heads and and make the case for general practice, how efficient it is, how safe it is, the remarkable things that it does, because their manifestos are going to be written in the next six months. This is our window of opportunity that's going to shape healthcare for the next parliament. And we've got to make sure that, yeah, okay, the DES comes to the end of its lifespan 
on the 31st of March 24, I can't see anything big, sexy, new and exciting being launched in the next six months. We know that government has budgeted an increase of 0.1% for health before the end of this parliament. So that is nothing. In fact, it's a real terms cut when you factor in inflation and, and the costs of living and the overheads for practices and so on. We know that next year is far more likely to be kicking the can down the road and probably leaving the really meaty issues for the next government, whatever shape and form and whenever that government takes place. So not allowing another imposition, agreeing a contract agreement that is fair and reasonable for 24-25 is, is absolutely vital. And part of that is making sure general practice is properly supported. And that's not just about money. I think we've got a box a bit clever, because if there is no money, the magic money tree is apparently empty, is a question many of us might have different opinions on. We've got to make sure that practices remain viable and can see patients, but also try and put some measures in place to help reduce the workload of GPs and make general practice a place where GPs want to work, make it feel safe. Because at the moment, why would many people gaining their CCT feel that it's a safe decision to enter into a partnership, for example? So we need to see some genuine markers from government that actually they are willing to protect general practice. And there is that ambition longer term. There's something to look forward to. The most important thing from my perspective is hope. It's making sure there's hope there for the existing workforce and maybe enough hope to tempt back some of our workforce that have chosen to walk away. Everyone listening to this will know that there's, there's the five-year contract comes to an end in April. So there's potentially you know, some big changes on the way. But it sounds like you think you are going to be just negotiating for one year in this next negotiation. Is that what you expect to be happening? Just a contract deal that will get through 24-25 to when the next government, the next funding settlement is all announced? If you were sitting in the Treasury as the Chancellor or you were sitting in the DHSC as the Secretary of State for Health, and you had a view to how successful you were going to be to be returned to Parliament as the sitting government in 2024, if you've got this enormous big issue, you're going to probably focus on the here and now. I think there's a bit of speculation as to whether Rishi Sunak is looking to make a few cuts now so as to enable a few tax breaks closer to a general election or a bit of a spending splurge then. And I think that's why everyone's being very guarded at the moment about finances. If there is no money, we have to think of some really elegant solutions as to how they can use existing budgets differently to give us what we need to change. So, for example, you could change the legislation around GMS and PMS contracts to permit limited liability vehicles to hold those contracts. That you know, doesn't cost the government anything. And we can work through what that might look like in terms of risks elsewhere, but it's already permitted under APMS. So why can't it be permitted under GMS and PMS? Because were I a prospective partner or were I a partner anxious about my liabilities, actually, if I can put a limit on those liabilities, I would sleep much more comfortably at night. And that, that's an example of things that we can do. And if there's already being money budgeted for workforce or if there's existing underspends, then they can be recycled, repurposed, rebadged and used in a way that's going to make much more sense for GPs on the ground and the practices that they're working in rather than any highfalutin ideas that we're all bombarded with on a daily basis with all sorts of lovely hashtag terms and 
ambitious things and nice pretty algorithms that don't actually achieve anything for our patients. I mean, are you hopeful that things like underspends could be recycled? Because obviously there was a, a real problem with last year's negotiations. I think that that was what the committee at the time was pushing for to get some of that money underspends from ARRS and IIF recycled and, and it didn't really happen. Is that something that you'd be pushing for again in the next contract negotiations? Well, I'd actually argue it has happened because a lot right. of the SDF, which is the, the System Development Fund, which is a pretty chunky bit of money, it's about three to four quid a patient across England, across the 42 systems. I mean, that's being badged against transforming primary care and the capacity and access bits and bobs and you know incorporating Fuller and all that kind of verbiage. But that is a lot of that's from the underspend of the previous year. So it is kind of being reallocated and reinvested in, in, in practices, perhaps not in the way that we necessarily choose. That pattern is already established. They're always rebadging and redoing stuff. So I think that's actually probably pushing at an open door. And I think it's being pragmatic. If I rock up and go, I want £11 billion, then people will just laugh in my face. And I think everyone realises it's about the art of the possible. There are other conversations for other times about much, much bigger issues about what happens in the future. So if we think back to the 2004 contract, that took three years to arrive to gestate. So I'm not going to be so naive as to say, yeah, no worries, babes. I'm sure we can sort that out in the next six months. It's not. And also uh, financially, economically, socially, as a country, our GDP and everything else, our productivity, we're currently at a nadir our inflation rates and so on, we're not in a great place to be determining a new contract for a whole generation. We have to time this right. So I would much rather we play for a little bit of time, get our evidence base, work with some amazing institutions we've got. The BMA as an association has got some incredible staff working behind the scenes. We need time to really get our facts straight and get massive rigour and scrutiny behind our claims and work up various modelling to be able to be in a position, a robust position to enter into that sort of negotiation for a contract that's going to make the next generation of general practice. And before you even do that, I think we need to be whispering in ministers' ears and and their special advisors and their lobbyists around making the case for general practice. General practice needs to be plan A because we can't afford plan B. There's no point costing up what a private service would look like or what a salaried model would look like or what the cost of a compulsory purchase order on every GP practice in the whole country because you're shelling out potentially billions to actually land you with something that's not going to be as efficient as the one we've got now. So do you believe that saving general practice is the same thing as saving the independent contractor model? Would you argue that? Yeah, I think it is. If you want to do some really fancy stuff about totally different models of delivery and so on, I think we all know that as I've called them, the pyjama session or the sofa session, when you're there with your laptop, logging in, doing your results, your path, your admin, your letters, your tasks. And when you're a partner, you are invested. You are invested to the point that you, even your home and <laughs> that you live in is at risk potentially if, if that contract goes wrong. So partners are immersed in their communities and they have to make it work. And, and that's why I think the independent contractor model 
remains the cornerstone of general practice. It's more than an economic case, but it makes a very strong economic case. It's about continuity of care. And that brings with it quality and trust and strength and consistency of the relationship of a patient with their family doctor throughout you know, all their health outcomes. There was that amazing article, that's probably about 18 months ago now, in the New Statesman by Phil Whitaker, the GP, about continuity of care. If it was a drug then NICE would be saying we need to have it twice a day, you know, and it should be free at the point of delivery. And because it's it saves lives, it reduces mortality and morbidity. Continuity of care is what we need to be championing. It's just so important. So, yeah, I think it's always remained at its core. No, it's not perfect, but I am yet to see another proposal that makes as much sense as what we have now. And I would argue that general practice isn't broken it has been broken and the partnership model isn't broken it is being broken it feels eccentric reckless and irresponsible that in 2023 gms and pms contractors can face unlimited liability you will not find that in any sphere of business or public sector other than where we are and that is an anomaly that i believe has to change People aren't stupid, and those coming through GP training now are just as intelligent as anyone who's gone before. So they're making their career decisions and their life decisions on the basis of risk now. And we we live and we exist and we practice in a much more heavily regulated and bureaucratically burdensome environment within the NHS today than we did even 10 years ago pre-CQC. And 20 years ago, it's virtually unrecognisable. So times change, and the contracts have to change with it. Talking about some of these big issues affecting general practice now, I mean, what concerns you most about the state of general practice? You know, is it the declining workforce, rising demand, befalling patient satisfaction, practice closures, underfunding? There's there's a whole litany of problems GPs are having to deal with at the minute. Is there any key part of the current problems that could help turn around everything else? Is the one thing we could do or do we have to attach all of these problems sort of in parallel? That's a great question, Emma, because you've literally read out a shopping list from hell, haven't you? So many of those things threaten us. And I think the issue of safety as not feeling safe is the biggest one. And it's our workforce that underpins that. Mm. Because people say GPs would be really nervous about striking and stuff like that. And I think there's a lot of credence, a lot of truth in that, because... There's not big barriers and layers of bureaucracy between us and our patients. We're kind of at the coalface. We feel that connection and that is one of our great strengths. But actually, GPs have been striking over the past five plus years. They've been striking by reducing their sessional commitments and by leaving the workforce. So I think the most important thing that that we need to impress upon ministers and, and manifesto writers is People are leaving for a reason and they're walking away for a reason and they're limiting their exposure to this toxic monopsony for a reason. And so why don't we listen to those GPs about what needs to change and what we feel needs to change, but what they're being told needs to change, I think are two different things. And so that's why we need to get into their lug holes and uh, tell them exactly what we need to do. So if you've got enough staff, then you can more easily control workload. And if you can control workload, then you can spend more time with your patients. And if you can spend more time with your patients, then your patient's safety is protected and your patients are happier. So being honest, however, this isn't a quick fix. This isn't going to be in the next six months. It has taken years to try and break general practice. It will take years to get it back to where it needs to be. But so long as we 
can turn that tide and start to bring back that sense of hope that I mentioned, I think that's really important. And I think tying in designing a safe contract is is one of those steps towards doing that. And when you say a safe contract, are you talking about sort of limits on workload in that? Or are you talking more about what you were mentioning earlier about limited liabilities and things like that? could be a bit of everything and this is what i think has been so brilliant about the safe working guidance that that gpc england has really pushed this year the lmcs such as my my own lmc pushed in the background it's so helpful because it's about safe working but it's also about managing need over want and it's about recognizing when you are at capacity and actually if you're deciding you're going to have to see 68 patients or try and see 120 on the triage list that isn't safe mistakes will be made and you will burn out and you will leave and you will not come back i want to give a little bit of leadership and let gps and their practice teams know that we have got their back and they need to be emboldened and encouraged and rejuvenated to understand how the safe working guidance is perfectly permissible in the, within the terms of their contract. This is what's so genius about the idea. The capacity gap, it goes back to commissioners because we're the only part of the healthcare environment that apparently can't limit their workload. Well, actually, we can, but we need to be careful in how we do it we've got to be safe we can't be reckless it's not a simple thing to enact it's a change in approach and i very much want to see you know the duty gp doctor sitting with the care navigators with their anp or with their paramedic you're all doing your duty together so you're triaging together to determine where those appointments need to be but when you're full you are full and it's at that point that you should be able to stipulate to your system, you know, through your commissioning support unit, that actually we've reached a, a point today where uh, we need to be taken off green on the local directory of services. One on one need to be signposting elsewhere because we're at capacity today. And that shouldn't be the boys that cries wolf. That needs to be done responsibly by practices. But I have every confidence that they can do it responsibly because when they're allowed to take on things themselves without the bureaucracy and the red tape, that's tends to be when we see the best of general practice like we did a, you know in the pandemic when things changed overnight and that was on orders from NHS England and the Department of Health and Social Care it wasn't us trying to hide behind locked doors but we can be innovative and we can be responsive when that is permitted. You've talked about the fact it has taken years to break general practice to what extent do you think that the survival of the future of general practice is kind of reliant on the actions of NHS England and the Department of Health and Social Care, what kind of role have they played in us getting to where we're at now? Obviously, they're two very different bodies. One is a government department, one is a mm. government organ. And I think that's what's so interesting about Andrew Lansley's reforms when the delegation of responsibility to NHS England. We are not going to get the successes we need if we pitch ourselves in a big fight against them. But saying that, if there's a cogent argument around safety, where some leverage could be gained that brings people to a negotiating table, that provides the leverage to determine that we will reach an agreement for 24-25 and not risk a third consecutive imposition, that is a road that we need to think about going down. So working better is always an improvement on working against. It's always better to have a seat at the table than not at all. But 
I'm not afraid to use my voice. People who know me will be, uh, be aware of that already. Neither is our team and, and the staff we work with and the committee we represent and, and the profession at large. We have no shame in demanding better standards for GPs and, and their teams and their patients. Our committee has made clear we are willing to take action if we're not presented with fair and reasonable terms. Now, NHS England is well aware of that, and they have the power to prevent that from happening. So to impose contracts, massive increase in patient demand, not in any way, shape or form matched by additional funding. That just makes it harder for us to do the jobs that we qualify to do. And that leads our teams to feel quite naturally demoralised and undervalued. And no doctor wants to be in a position to be forced into taking action. But I think the government would be woefully naive to think that's not an option for us. How close do you think general practice in England is to industrial action? Where are we at the moment with that? Is it dependent on what happens in these next negotiations that you're about to enter into as to whether we reach a point where we might need industrial action? Well, I think industrial action, um, as, as we've seen, the temperature's rising and we've got the juniors and the consultants undertaking action. I wouldn't be surprised if we see associate specialists and staff grade doctors uh, next in line. And so I think it's very important that we turn the dial up on this with ourselves. When we do it, we, of course, are going to feel a bit different differently to the other branches of practice because they are one employer, one employee, one contract. To say that we are a mixed bag and we are very pluralist in, 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 our, in our design would be an understatement. As I often say, you can't break wind in general practice without there being a regulatory framework and a statutory guidance behind it. And you mentioned industrial action. I think I might actually tweak that, Emma, and talk about action because there's lots of action we can take. And industrial action is just one type that has to have a very carefully set out route around it, according to Tulkra rules and the rest of it. I think there are lots of tools in our armoury around maybe potential collective action, which would not necessarily risk breaching contracts, but which could still get that leverage. I don't want to deploy an atomic bomb now if uh, some... Uh, slightly smaller explosive devices could bring us the results we need with this government in this parliament. Uh, I would rather keep those bigger threats looming at large around uh, future big contracts that are going to change things for a generation. Because once you've deployed your nuclear weapons, you've got nowhere else to go. And sometimes it can set off a chain reaction that can blast back in your face. I'm clearly being overly influenced by Oppenheimer here. (laughs) There's things we can do in the window of the next six months that would make life easier for partners, make life feel safer for partners, make a case of safety for patients that would need to be done collectively to have that impact, but which could lead NHS England to really take us seriously and come to the table. What are those things? We can save that for the next podcast, Emma. (laughs) And it would be unfair of me to start mouthing off on my own little soapbox without the support backing of my committee. I've got my ideas and and others are starting to know them and they're all going, I see what you mean. So I think I've got some tricks up my sleeve, but I need a bit of time to sort it out so that we can launch it or get tools that we need throughout September, October onwards. You're thinking that, that we're more likely to get to a point where we could see some kinds of actions like that rather than full-on big-scale industrial action, you know, that's unlikely to to be on the table until maybe 25, 26. Before we get down the route of 
industrial action, you'd need to have a ballot. And before you have a formal ballot, you'd need to have an indicative ballot. And before you have an indicative ballot, you'd need to be working with the profession to understand where they are now and where they need to get to and what your outcomes for leverage would be. Now, with this government, there's a limit to what they're going to be able to do before they potentially lose their mandate to run Parliament. If we deploy a nuclear arsenal now and then they're bumped out of their roles in autumn 24 and a brand new parliament's in, but we've already deployed our our weaponry, where can we go from there? I'd, I'd rather we try and keep things in reserve because I'm not so sure that a decision that might have been right you know, in 2021 or 2022 doesn't necessarily mean it's right this year. And and we've got to think longer term strategically about how it will play into next year and and the year after and the year after. Mm. We've got to look and see what the juniors have done, look and see what the consultants have done. They've only got one contract with one employer and one employee, right? And they have spent the best part of the past two or three years prepping the professions for, for the action they're taking now. Now, it's a source of regret to me personally that we aren't in a better position to, to have those conversations now, but I don't think we are. I don't think it's, it's ready. I can stand up locally in, in my LMC and get a straw poll and have all of people kind of like rambling and clamoring for to do stuff. But ultimately, on a national level, everyone's going to feel very different and everyone's experiences are very different depending upon where they're practicing and what their funding arrangements look like and also there's a sense of responsibility i want to know absolute sureness Uh, i want to get really good legal advice and the bma are all over this around what are the risks to those contractors because i can very easily see from my lmc experience the sorts of icbs and the sorts of practices that might if this is not done right be open up to potential risk for breach notices or, you know, in extremists, God forbid, a termination notice. And no one's going to go down that route if that's a potential risk hanging over their head. So we want to frame this responsibly and safely for our profession and frame it safely for our patients. And that's not even going down the route of bringing our patients with us and using our PPGs. There's a lot of work to do. And at the same time, there's lots of lobbyists and there's lots of nasty whispers in the ears of the media briefing against us constantly. So I think there's a hell of a lot of homework and groundwork to be done before we approach that. But I'm certainly not discounting it. It's all about sequencing and timing. Your statement after you were elected, you mentioned that you wanted to be discussing with ministers how we can better redistribute investment into the core GP contract. And I know that's something that um, BMA members um, and LMCs have have voted in favour for. What are you talking about there? Are you talking about redistributing money from funding streams like the PCN, DES, ARRS, all of that into core funding? Or are you talking about more money from the wider NHS funding coming into general practice? Oh, why not both? But I think we've got to get it right. So comments have been made nationally that, oh, well, you know, the current model you know, it, it goes into individual practices and practice buildings. And actually, that's old fashioned. And we want to co-locate our services and scale up primary care and all that kind of stuff and have a wider range of capacity and fuller and same day urgent care models. And, you know, could we look at doing triage differently? Could we do that at scale? Could we do that through 111? Now, all these ideas to this cold, jaded LMC secretary's heart are pie in the sky. Let's take one example around premises. 
where's the capital for premises in general practice development? It's not. It's all lumped into one pot at a system level. And so if I take my patch across Cambridge and Peterborough, the first thing they have to do is they'll top slice it to sort out the, the rack issue for the hospitals that were built at a certain point in the late 80s and 90s with the rapidly cooling concrete roofs that are now threatening collapse. That's the focus on, on, on systems across the country. And then you've got the, the breadcrumbs uh, dusted off the table for, for general practice afterwards. So it's one thing to talk about these fizzy whiz bang primary care services co-located in these amazing scaled up buildings and the rest of it. But that's just cloud cuckoo land because I don't see where the capital and revenue are going to come for that. And also what I'd say from my LMC experience is scaling up general practice doesn't work. There's a sweet spot and it can get too big. So there isn't a one size fits all approach. And we have to remember that, you know, there can be too small, there can be too big. So it's about the Goldilocks zone for general practice. And I think GPs know their patients and they know their local area best. But I think practices need to be empowered to take the approach that's right for them and their patients. Our premises, our infrastructure have been massively neglected for, for years. And so often when I think GPs historically might have fallen into the easy, seductive trap of thinking the more we merge and the bigger we are, the less of a personal responsibility I have. But hey, guess what, guys, you're all jointly and severally liable and your liabilities are visible from space. The profession is much more cognizant now that they shouldn't be bullied and pushed into these bigger arrangements. PCNs uh, work brilliantly in some areas, haven't really taken off in others. You know, collaborative working is a great idea, executed dreadfully under this DES. And yeah, the DES ends in six months' time, but actually there's lots of contractual ideas you could put in place to enable collaboration in a way that doesn't undermine practices, because what I feel is that the registered list is the heart of patient care, and that's where the buck stops and that's where the, the central core funding should be. So that so when you have like, if you've got X and Y and X is your, your practice model, but Y is your other vehicle for channeling funding into where the government's got a lot more control, and you could call that the PCN days, it could be anything else, then actually there's a limit to how much power needs to be in that second pot. And I think a lot of practices, the bulk of practices, would prefer to have the knowledge and the reassurance that there's not going to be too much instability, but there's going to be a lot more freedom of choice to make things work according to their geographies. So you permit and you flourish where things are working well at scale because the, the demography and, and the infrastructure of that locality setting of about you know thirty to 50,000 patients makes sense. And then you've got other areas where actually employment people at a practice level is the best thing for them because maybe there might be a really big practice and it works well already maybe they're a federated model maybe they're in a rural setting where the logistics of traveling just aren't going to make it feasible and i'm open to all sorts of ideas i'm not going to be closing off excellent suggestions and are you intending on building on the work of your predecessors that the bma published that call to action not so long ago which really kind of set out what the association felt that general practice needed to provide good quality care and pretty much build as would be the basis for sort of contract negotiations going forward. Is that something you still stand by or, or are you intending to start from scratch again? 
We've got a new team in place. So I'm, I think what we're going to do is look and see everything we've got. There are quite a few work streams and quite a lot of those work streams have had a hell of a lot of work put into them and they're really, really robust. But equally, you know, I'm probably going to want to put my own stamp on stuff and, and, and the current team. I put in place statements and suggestions and a speech upon the basis of which I was elected by the committee. There's lots of strengths. What I'd perhaps like to do is is nick all the really good stuff that we've got uh, from the previous team, of which there's very, very much. And, you know, I, I really just want to thank them for, for the work they've done, Kieran and Richard and Claire and David. And, of course, we've still got David, so that's excellent continuity as well. And we're, we're having a, a very professional handover at the moment. And kind of then look to see how we can perhaps refine it, shape it, nuance it to be more in the style of what we want going forwards. So I think I personally would love to work more closely with patient organisations. That's the way to win the hearts and minds. This is really political and people might roll their eyes, but we've got to shape what goes into those manifestos for next year's general election. And if, you know, you know, you look at the front of the, the mail or whatever, there's always a quote from the same people from their own patient organisations that they use and they put things to them to come out against GPs. Well, actually, I think there's very little difference between what patients want and what GPs and practice teams want. So if we together could come up with our our list of what we both want to support the family doctor model, then that's what we should go in together. Because I think that would be irresistible to politicians because our thousands of patients that trust us are the thousands of voters that those MPs need. And I think it's that winning combination. So if we can better mould in a patient voice and go arm in arm with our patients rather than be adversary or seem to be protectionist or isolationist, then that's all the better for our future outcomes. And have you written to the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary yet? I know you said you were going to as soon as you were elected. Have you, have you written to them then yet? And what have, you, what have you asked them? Hot off the press, Emma. Letters have actually gone off this morning. You know, setting out who I am, where we are, and some of our worries and concerns and how important this is to patients and voters across the country and how actually we'd really like that chance to have a bit of a a sensible chat because we think there are things that can be done now that are going to protect the workforce and maybe even bring some back and keep us safe. And if you keep general practice safe, then you keep people out of hospital. And if you keep people out of hospital and out of ambulances, then the front pages are less scathing to politicians. So you're kind of trying to help them get what they want as well and and hopefully make make them think it's their idea. But I recognise that this stuff has to kind of be cost neutral or at least initially set out to be cost neutral over the next six months. I've got my own concerns around how it's going to be far from a cost neutral winter. We're heading into a bit of a perfect storm. And I'm really worried about the cost of living and inflationary pressures on practices at the start of this year when the contract was imposed. You know, I was looking at this and thinking to myself, oh God, it's not going to hit practices yet. But when we start to come into quarter three and quarter four of the financial year and the practice accounts come in and we'll start to see, you know, that there isn't the big COVID vaccination campaign that practices did quite well out of because they worked harder and they did more, therefore they get more, that's going to be quite a hit potentially. So I'm really worried about the viability of practices. It's such an opportune moment to have these conversations. And Steve Barclay is a constituency MP on my patch. And there's recently been an issue with a practice that was signal for closure, which uh, is now not through through his intervention. A lot of GPs, of course, know him well. So we can we can try and use the best of those local connections. All we can do is, is extend that olive branch and see where we get to. 
you mentioned inflation there. Obviously, one of the things that is in the air at the minute and hasn't been sorted yet is this whole thing about the 6% pay uplift for salaried GPs and practice staff. And apparently, much a surprise to us, it's actually funded this unit. Money is going into the GP contract to cover this. Do you know what's going on with that at all? Or have you had any discussions yet about that with them? So that's the first thing I need to pick up with Amanda Doyle in my new job. And I've been slightly distracted by an issue that's come out over the past week with regards to vaccinations. My next big thing is is around that 6%. There's so many questions about this because, you know, we've got a capitated contract. There's wide variation of our pay across practices, indeed parts of the country and cost of living. So we really do need to understand that, that what, what is going to be invested in. And it's one thing to promise it. It's quite another to deliver it. And what we want to understand is you've got to get the bottom line of the finance into the right place. It's not enough to kind of signal a headline figure, but then leave practice to pick up extra costs. It's got to be worked through really carefully. And they've committed to it publicly and they've, they've set it out publicly. So we need to hold them to account on that. And that might be a bit of a difficult conversation, but they've put it out there at 6%. That's what we need to hold them to. And I think that is an incredibly responsible task for us uh, over the next week or so. And the vaccinations thing you just mentioned there, is that about the COVID vaccinations? Exactly. So I think what's so interesting is that the UK Health Security Agency published the JCVI modelling on the 8th of August. And that modelling was done on the routine immunisations tariff of £10.6. So the decision to reduce the COVID vaccination programme tariff to £7.54 has clearly come after the JCVI modelling and is a very curious decision. And I just wonder if people need a bit of an opportunity to sit and think about this and save some face and maybe change their minds because we've now got the new BA 2.75 Eris variant that I've spoken to eminent public health colleagues within the BMA. And they've said, you know, it's too soon to say modelling's being done, but on the face of it, it looks to have much greater infectivity compared with uh, the most recent Omicron variants. We're talking in the region of 26 to 28% more infectious. There's been uh, some under 70 deaths for the first time over the past 10 days in a, in a lot of systems, a lot of regions. And if this means we're going to see a lot of admissions, not necessarily mortality, but people poorly enough to require inpatient intervention, that is going to completely scupper elective recovery and waiting lists. That's going to be like industrial action from COVID. So it doesn't feel like the right time to be making that vaccination programme financially unviable to deliver. And I think it's really important that ministers take a mature decision around this because I think it could end up being a bit of a disaster. I just wanted to bring this up because obviously you were one of a group of women GPs who called out sexism in the BMA in 2019 and triggered the Romney report. How significant do you think it is? I mean, that was obviously a very brave thing to do at the time. I mean, how significant do you think it is that you're now leading the BMA England GP committee? Thanks. It's kind of you to say it was quite a difficult period. And I I think it was because I was just so cross. I'm actually quite a calm person and it takes quite a lot to really rile me. But I think there can come a point where everybody 
hits their level and then it's just too much and you're like okay enough and I, and I kind of throw my toys out the pram I did that with Zoe Norris and indeed others even though it's 2019 it feels a very long time ago because so much has happened since then at the time I'd said you know I'm, I'm there's no way I'm going to seek higher office in the BMA on the basis of how things are and of course now quite quite rightly some people might go oh you're a bloody hypocrite Bramble um, and I would put my hands up and go yeah well I certainly never anticipated doing this job and to be honest with you I'd probably rather not. I'd probably rather be twiddling around having fun in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, you know, playing games on the ICB and sorting out the locally commissioned arrangements. But there's a there's a limit to what you can do at an LMC level. So many ceilings tend to happen at a national and you're like, oh, if only we could sort this out. And I had so many members of the committee ask me to stand. I thought maybe it does have to fall to me to see if I can bring everyone together. And I'm very proud and privileged to do that. I don't think it's an enormously attractive job. I think it is going to be a, a bit of a kamikaze mission with, with the government we've got and the rest of it. And there is a big sense of responsibility. But I am a sad workaholic. I do love this. My dopamine hit is getting things a bit better for practices and for GPs. We're in a very different place now with the BMA. We've now got two female co-chief executives. Obviously, when I last checked, I was female. I've got um, Samira Anan on my team who got the largest mandate out of any of the deputy chairs. She's female. So we have got lots of opportunities and a lot has changed. And I think that the fact that the BMA tasked Daphne Romney QC, then was Casey now, of course, I was really impressed by. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background of the BMA around trying to implement those recommendations. There's a different feel that allowed a lot of people, be it members and staff, to come forward. And I think the BMA is far from alone in being an organisation that has looked inwardly and reflected and shown some insight in how it, it needs to change. Is it done? Is it sorted? Is it perfect? No, of course it's not. Is there a need to change? Absolutely. But that's also true. And I'd encourage all organisations, you know, GP practices, PCNs, LMCs, all of us should always strive to continually improve where we can in terms of our diversification to make sure we've got the best and brightest people in, in, in the key roles. And it needs to be, you know, a brutal meritocracy. So I, I don't really want to necessarily be defined as that woman who complained. I'd rather be known as that person that got something done. Any form of sexism is just so passe and so unacceptable. The workforce is primarily female. You know, our practice manager workforce is primarily female. Commissioners are primarily female. ICBs are predominantly female. And so it's, it's, it's nice to see the BMA looking a bit more like the profession it represents. And one other thing I wanted to ask you, I and mean, you were also diagnosed with MS more than a decade ago. You talked in your statement about when you became chair about GPs being advocates for patients. You know, at a time when more patients are living with one or more long term conditions, does your own experience feed into the way you approach your role as a GP and as a GP leader? Oh, God, yeah. How can it not? I think so many of us are going round with chronic conditions. And often when you're talking to commissioners, and people have been really thinking so much, and, uh, and those lobbyists, they might be quite young, healthy people who fortunately not yet encountered a long-term condition or not had a need to see the same person for a condition. Now, I think that perhaps the most relevant feature for that would be mental health. And people who've had a, a mental health experience 
are the first to often recognise and value that continuity of care. All the, all the patients that have poor experiences is when they have this fractured, multi-episodic experience of generic primary care. So you, you see a clinical pharmacist for that, and then you might see a nursing associate for that, and you might see a, a musculoskeletal first contact physio for that, and then maybe a mental health practitioner for that. And of course, the beauty of the GP model is the biopsychosocial model, the holistic model that looks at the whole patient, way more efficient. And, and having that knowledge and that feeling of safety that somebody knows you, it makes all the difference. How I was diagnosed and when I was diagnosed, again, makes all the difference. It can't help but shape our experiences as patients, as parents, as children of our parents who are getting older. All these things shape who we are and and, and shape what we feel we need. Uh, And I think it's really important and helpful for GPs to to have that experience of being a patient themselves. Um, uh, And yeah, my MS, I'm terribly fortunate. It was quite active to begin with. And I was was quite aggressive with my treatment. At the moment, it's behaving itself quite well, and I feel terribly lucky. But it is that Damocletian sword that's hanging over you. But I think that kind of gives me much more of a sense of carpe diem. My my LMC chair, Diana Hunter, gave me uh, to read on the on the back of what's happened over the past week a little present, which was that book, Four Thousand Weeks, about our lives, which is basically comes down to four thousand weeks and what you're going to do with it. And she said, "Look, we've worked together for two hundred weeks so far, and the next two hundred weeks." What are you going to do differently? How are you going to change the world? What do you want to do with it? And and I think for a long time, I, I felt very down because I wasn't quite sure how my MS would, would evolve. It's such an idiosyncratic disease. It affects everybody differently. I know what my risks are now for relapses and I know how to avoid them. But you kind of need time and you need time to kind of bed into to what you've got. And it's it's managing that uncertainty. And of course, that's what GPs do. We're great at managing uncertainty. But I, I feel very fortunate every day. I think about it every day, but it helps remind me me and keep me safe about you know don't allow yourself to get too tired don't allow yourself to do margaret thatcher levels of sleep things like that i am a bit of a night owl i'm a bit of a workaholic that's just me and that's never going to change of course it impacts upon it uh, how can it not but i think that helps perhaps make me a much more rounded person and certainly a more grounded person you've mentioned hope a couple of times that you want to to give the profession some kind of hope over the next year or so I mean, how hopeful are you personally about the future of general practice in England? I'm hopeful because if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be doing this job. Right. Yeah. It's what makes me get up every morning and uh, and it's knowing what we do. And I, I kind of want to see a much more trumpeting of, of the amazing stories of what general practice achieves. Over a million patients are seen every single day, you know, almost almost half of those million patients are on a same-day urgent care basis. So we talk about potentially creating some waiting lists, and that might be, you know, three, four, five, six wait to get something done routinely. Well, so what? What what is it in your local trust? How many months is that to see somebody? We are incredibly efficient. We're an amazing model. If they tried to get rid of us, they'd have to reinvent us. You can't run a health service without a robust general practice. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people that would like to see you know, re-procurements and 111 doing a single point of access of, of triage. You know, people have spoken about that. And I just sit back and laugh because
because these people have no idea how general practice is run. So they have no idea of the tens of thousands of calls a day across every system that practices pick up and how efficiently they manage it. And you only have to look at the vaccination program when, you know, when the proverbial really does hit the fan, who do they come to to get things done? Think back to December 2021, when suddenly it was everybody needs a booster by Boxing Day. And who do they go to? The mass vax providers, the trusts? No, they came to general practice because they know they need general practice. So as I always say very proudly, we are the cockroaches of the NHS. And uh, they'll do many things to try and exterminate us and make life difficult for us. And we'll still be there crawling around, (laughs) evolving and getting things done. Much better to work with us and we can get so much done. And a great GP is amazing for patients. I think we could all experience that. And I think a lot of patients, if you talk to them, they recognise that they have lost their GP. Their family doctor may have retired, may have reduced their sessions, may have gone to Canada. They get it on a personal level. It's on a popular population level that that I think we're losing that narrative that I think all we can do is work better with our patients to make that case so I think there's a lot to be hopeful for and I do feel much more optimistic now than perhaps I have done at any point since the pandemic. Well that's good that's a really nice positive note to to end it on so thank you so much for your time Katie and thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure really enjoyed talking to you Emma thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks very much to Dr. Katie Brummelstein for taking the time to talk with me this week. I'm back next week when we'll have that interview with Professor Sir David Haslam, who talks to me about how we can fix the NHS. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting primary care and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 